Good morning again. Good morning to our friends online. If you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, we're continuing through the story of the fall, of what went wrong with the world. We're going to read verses 14 to 24. All right, so this is the first week of Advent, and for our Advent series, I'm not going to change directions, it's just what Advent is designed to do is to teach us and prepare our hearts for the reality of what Genesis is doing, which is the world and ourselves are so crooked, only God can straighten it all out, and, and we're waiting for him to act, uh, waiting for him to come. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to look at the depths and darkness of what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with us that leads to that promise that the God of the garden would come in the person of Jesus uh, to bring hope to the hopeless, uh, to make his blessings known as far as the curse is found. And so we're going to look at here in the fall, Genesis 3, we're going to look at Genesis 4 and 5, how sin and, and death spread, and then we'll look at the flood, and then we'll look at the Tower of Babel, uh, because that's what Genesis 3 3, 1 to 11 really is, is, is this introduction to the whole problem of the whole world, leading to God's solution through the, the one promised son of Abraham, who is Jesus. So let's look at the first promise of Christmas and here in, in chapter 3. This is the word of our God. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust shall you, you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard to the, the way to the tree of life. And this is God's word. Uh, it is true and trustworthy. He's spoken to us today. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our good Father, we are a people haunted by these words we just read, uh, who are weighed down by the difficult relationships, 
the problems we have with our work, and even the living in the valley of the shadow of death. And so this morning, as we look at your promise, shine the light of the glory of Christ, uh, help us see Jesus, that we may be, be transformed into a people who patiently love our neighbors, who are able to say to our neighbors, you too feel that we run to Jesus for help. And so may we be those ambassadors of reconciliation you've called us to be. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So here we are in another holiday season. I don't know if you've been to the stores yet, but all, all the songs are going to tell us that uh, it's the most wonderful time of year. Uh, to be jolly, everything's bright, be merry, um, drown your sorrows by buying lots of stuff. <laughs> right, and I know what's what happens because you don't want to be at a buzzkill at the party at Christmas. Um, we do have uninvited guests at our Christmas tables every year, right? It's, it's relational difficulties. It's, it's the burden of our work that is not living up to our expectations and the reality that we are dust and to dust we return. Um, there's, there's both joy and distress every Christmas. And so part of the reason I would start with Genesis 3 to 11, because it really does help us get ready for Christmas, to really understand what Jesus came to do. It helps us be honest, that you can come and say, I have relational difficulty. Um, work is painful, anxious toil. It's wearing me out. Um, I'm still grieving. I haven't forgotten. Right? This, is, this is what Christmas is about. This is where you go. And yet, it's so much easier to stay busy. <laughs> I, I discovered a poet named W.H. Auden uh, who wrote this line just before World War II started, just as the war was taken off. And it's all about how people are just trying to deal with the awfulness of life or the troubles. And he writes this, uh, Faces along the bar cling to their average day. The lights must never go out and the music must always play. And all these conventions conspire to make this Ford assume the furniture of home, right? Trying to make this thing right here comfortable. We do that lest we should see where we are, lost in a haunted wood, children afraid of the night who have never been happy or good. See, Auden's doing the same thing. He's saying, let's get our head out of the sand, so to speak, and look at the world as it really is. Because when you do that, the light that shines in the darkness, shines brighter, <laughs> or you really see what he came to do. And so we're going to do that this morning. Uh, last week we left off in, in the shadow or in the, the echoes of the first sin. It's taught us a lot about what I'm like, what human beings are like, how we're all like Adam, right? We saw how sin makes us lawbreakers. Uh, we've transgressed the covenant. Uh, we've seen that covenants are like a marriage. Sin is also deeply relational. We've, we've broken the covenant. We're spiritually unfaithful. Um, as the hymn says, right, We're, we have hearts that are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I could say that we have hearts like Eve that are easily deceived by our desires. Um, and all that can be summed up well by J.I. Packer saying, what is sin? Right? It's playing God acting as if me and my pleasure are the most important thing in the world. And even God then becomes a means to that end. Right? And so, in light of all that, 
We left Adam and Eve going, it's not my fault. How does God respond to what they've done? How does he respond to betrayal on the spiritual honeymoon, so to speak? How does he respond to cosmic treason? How does he respond to law-breaking? And he says, well, there's, there's going to be judgment, exile, and hope. Those are the three things we're going to see. So let's look at judgment and curse, and there is good news in the midst of it. So, um, But it, this is brutally honest, and I, f- I find this really helpful. It's designed for us to go, this is why I feel life is not out how it ought to be. This is, this, this is where it came from. Right? This is the fallout. And so let's start with the serpent, this creature who is cursed in verse 14. It's only a few times you actually hear God verbally speak a curse at anyone or anything. And it says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. There's enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I don't think the curse is that snakes, you know, were upright, walking around, had legs, and boom, amputated. (laughs) Now they're crawling, born to just freak out women everywhere across the world. Uh, It's it's a metaphor, right? This is shifted into poetic language or rhythmic speech, trying to tell you uh, what the consequences of what happened here. And the curse means that this serpent, I mean, it's mysterious at this point, but it's doomed to permanent humiliation and defeat. That's what it means to eat dust and crawl on its belly. It's giving it symbolic meaning. Right? Because to eat dust throughout the scriptures is a graphic portrait of being a loser, being defeated. Right? Picture um, a head in the sand. Right? If you are eating dust, your mouth is in the dirt. Often with your enemies foot on your head, right, in, in a place where they had to fight. Right? Psalm 92 says it really clearly, talking about God's ideal king, right? May he have dominion from the sea to sea, river, from the river to the ends of the earth. May he have control, power over everything, right? And may his enemies lick the dust. You can hear that, that metaphor. Right? And then you can add to the picture, Maybe you can want to turn there to Isaiah 65. Um, right, this is getting an idea that this thing that cr- brought evil, he's going to be punished. Isaiah 65, 17 talks about the new heavens and new earth. When God says, behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former, th- former things shall not be remembered, and be glad and rejoice. I'm going to rejoice in Jerusalem, be glad in my people, and and in the city no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping, no more sound of distress, no more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. You're going to build houses and live in them and plant vineyards and eat their fruit, in verse 21. Uh, Verse 23 now verse 22 is great. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and the chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity because they'll be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord. And here's the point in verse 25. The wolf and lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. 
and dust shall be the serpent's food. Right? Isaiah is saying, it's so bad right now, our only hope is a new heavens and new earth. And in this new heavens and new earth, even there, <laughs> the serpent's still going to eat dust. Even there, he's still going to be cursed. He's going to be exiled from the joy of the new creation. And so those first words back in Genesis 3 are trying to get us to see just as evil was introduced into the world as a parasite on the good through the serpent, its rule and reign has an expiration date, enmity and the promise of permanent humiliation. Isn't that amazing? Right? In the midst of all this ugliness brought on by human failure, the serpent is the only one who gets no promise of salvation. Right? The evil one. He gets no deliverance. He gets enmity and hostility. Right? That's, that's the first part here in, in verse 14. Between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And, and so here's what it's telling you to do as you get ready to read the Bible. Expect family feud. Right? Expect hostility between two different families of humans. Because that's what the whole Bible's about. It's a tale of two hostile families, like the Hatfields and McCoys, if you will. Right? All the offspring of the woman, all those who believe and trust God's promises, and all the offspring of the serpent, who are against God and, and his ways, all those who don't believe in the God's promise of a Messiah. Right? And so you're going to see that worked out. Cain versus Abel. You see it with Jacob and Esau. You see it with Joseph and his brothers. You see it with Israel and the nations. You see it with Jesus against the whole world. Right? Hostility, enmity. There's going to be two different families of humans that are not going to get along because they have different worldviews, different beliefs. So what do you do with that? Well, here's what's really important to see. When God says, Eve, you're going to have children, and not all of them are going to believe, not all of them are going to be on God's side, right in the beginning, God is saying, I'm going to allow humanity to rebel. Right? The wheat and the weeds, to use Jesus' words, are going to grow up together in the same world. We call this common grace. Right? Humans aren't cursed. They aren't just obliterated. God says, no, my plan to fill the earth with humans is still going to go forward. And there are going to be those who believe and those who do not. I'm putting enmity, hatred, hostility, distrust in between two groups of humans. Right? Between the family of faith and the family of unbelief. You know what this is like, right? I just saw a Jimmy Kimmel video. Uh, it was called, he called the clip, uh, Thanks Dreading. <laughs> and they went out in the streets of New York City and said, we're going to give you a mask and just tell us who you're dreading to see at the holidays and why. And they gave them a ridiculous mask. For example, the vegan does not like her uncle because he just chases her around with meat. And they made her wear a Turk giant turkey mask, right? <laughs> so that was one example. And you can just imagine all the different stories we have in our own, in our own, just here, much less 
all of humanity. And what God is telling us, like that, right? just be ready for family difficulty revolving around your response to who Jesus is. It's right here, the seed form in Genesis 3. And that God's plan to bless the world is also through family. Right? Family is both a cause of blessing and hurt. That's the first part. The second part of this in, in 3.14 is the evil one, the serpent's going to have his head bruised and crushed by a particular descendant of Eve, a particular son, right? It uses the male pronoun he. And so we'll come back to this, but right at the beginning, again, God is saying, your reign, evil, is on a leash. Your head will be crushed. You're going to have free reign for a while, but it's all part of my plan. <laughs> right? So whatever evil or injustice is haunting you, you've got to look for this. Judgment day is coming for the serpent, for the evil one, the one who introduced evil into the world. This is where we go. Right? So that's the first curse. The serpent doesn't get questions. He doesn't get conversation. He just gets, this is how it is. You're going to lose. It's going to take time, but you're going to lose. Next up is the consequences for the man, woman and then the man. Right? Human beings aren't cursed, but they feel the pain of the curse. Right? Pain and toil are now part of our, our normal. For the woman... Right? It's pain in childbirth. That work of filling the earth with humans now involves pain. and uh, The pain is surely more than just physical. It's both, right? Labor. Uh, it's painful. But what also is painful is mothering. Right? Ask any mother. Right? The mothers are only ever as happy as their most miserable child. Right? Maternal love is going to be full of joy. You have children, but also it's painful toil. Then the second part of this, it says, for women, uh, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And so marriage is going to be difficult. Marriage, which was the highlight of God's creation, the culmination at the end of chapter 2, where they're both just rejoicing in each other and their nakedness and unashamed and their one flesh, they're united, is now marred by the pain of battling competing desires. Right? This, is, this is the pressure in every human relationship and in particular marriage, even the best ones. Right? What does it mean for desire contrary to your husband? Um, or there's a little footnote in, in the ESV, it can mean contrary to your husband or t- for your husband, toward I mean, it can either mean her desire for her husband is so intense that it just controls her very happiness. It becomes enslaving. Right? She's living for him, and he's going to rule over her. She'll just do whatever he commands, and you can see how that gets worked out. Um, it can mean, or it can mean her desire is to be in control against her husband which may lead to manipulation. And the husband's response is also not well. It's to rule, um, like dominate, that kind of attitude. And so however you take this, <laughs> right? I mean, that, that second view is 
This sounds an awful lot like what God says to Cain about sin desiring to rule over you and to take charge. However you take this, it's saying the marriage covenant that was once filled with joy and delight is now going to be marred and made difficult by desires run rampant by both the husband and the wife. Right? So rather than to love and to cherish the wife as if she were his own body, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, now it's desire and domination. This is the fallout of sin. Right? Then to Adam, he gets the next uh, proclamation of punishment here. To Adam, he said, because you listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I'll speak generally here, right? Do you see how the punishments or the consequences of the first sin go after the very core of what it's like to be a man and a woman? Right? goes right after the woman's desires as a wife and mother. And for Adam, his pain, his painful toil is right after the innermost nerve of his work, as one person put it. Right? His work. Providing for the family. Perpetual pain haunts everybody at the, the center of their existence. Right? And you see how this works itself out. Work itself isn't cursed. Work isn't bad. Work is, was in the garden when it, God declared it good, but now it's combined with toil. What, what Psalm 127 calls anxious toil is the food I eat. It's difficult. I wonder where my meals are going to come from. Or my work isn't satisfying. It's, it's pain. Right? And so you think about that call to put good things into the world. Right? This is the history of the world. We have a great idea, and that great idea gets turned into something that harps people. Social media, right? Let's make this thing that connects people. Turns out that same thing that connects people is ruining families. Right? Painful toil and futility and frustration, right? That's a farming metaphor these thorns and thistles haunt any good work you try and try and do. It's like creation itself is groaning, rebelling against what we try to do. It, it fights back against our ruling. And so we go to bed early, or we wake up early, and we go to bed late. And there's anxiety in the morning and anxiety in the evening. Uh, ulcers, stress, it becomes a chore. Right? That's what thorns and thistles are about. It's, it's painful. Something grows that you didn't want to grow. Later in the Bible, you know who becomes the thorns and thistles? Uh, the nations and their gods. In other words, this is going to grow. And even the, the good work of believing God's promise that he loves you and he will... Uh, redeem all things, and he will be with you, and he forgives sin, right? It's going to be harassed by the thorns of different gods, different moralities, different worldviews. That's what happens when Israel goes into the promised land. You have nice neighbors who tempt you 
to leave the Lord who loves you. So, Merry Christmas, right? <laughs> right? But this is life east of Eden. The ground is cursed. There's anxious toil. There's distress in families. Romance is both a joy and difficult uh, work. And then life is just lived in the valley of the shadow of death. Because Adam will return to the dust in death. Adam, the man, will go back to the Adamah from which he was formed. So what do you do with all that? Well, the Apostle Paul is really helpful when he you fast forward to Romans chapter 8 and he says, you know what? The creation is waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, waiting for Jesus to restore humanity to their former glory because this, the creation was subjected to futility. Right? It was enslaved to futility, to frustration. Not, but because of him who subjected it. And we know, says Paul, that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Right? This is giving words for where your groaning comes from. Feeling the distress and toil that strikes at the center of all that we desire most. We want marriage to go well. We want someone to love us. We want our children to love us. We want them to respond to our parenting. We want our parenting to not have to involve confession. We want our work to be satisfying. And yet, here we are exiled east of Eden, and this is the second part of the consequence. All right, Adam, the man, calls his wife's name Eve. She's the mother of all, li of all living. And the Lord God makes for Adam and Eve clothes. But then he says, look, they become like us. All right, and we don't want him to take his hand and also take of the fruit of the tree of life and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden to go to work, the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It's exile. It's one of the most painful things that could ever happen is to be left out, right? to run into a closed door. And so God's judgment concludes with exile from the garden. And there's good reason. It's merciful. I mean, just, just go read the news. Meditate on yourself, know, knowing what you know about the world. And imagine if that was permanent. Life forever. Right? Forever in the state of hiding naked and shame. Controlled by our desires. And so, God says, I don't want that for them. That's not my plan. <laughs> so God graciously refuses to let us stay in the state of sin forever. And he exiles them so he can go about the good work of preparing the way to give us access to the tree of life again through Jesus. But right now, in Genesis 3, nobody can get back in. It's barred actively, right? There's a bouncer at the door, cherubim with a flaming sword of judgment. Right? So just feel that. <laughs> you got to let the weight of, of exile fall on us. I mean, later when God gives instructions to his people in Israel in the desert to build a tabernacle that he might dwell with his people, he says, I want you to, to build a curtain, and I've given people skill that they might embroider on that curtain cherubim 
angels. Right? And I want you to hang it so that nobody can come into the Holy of Holies. A visual reminder of that the door back to the tree of life is barred because we're unclean, impure. No access to the intimate presence of the living God. Right? So what do you do with this reality <laughs> of exile, of the curse, of these frustrations? And I think one way that's really helpful to think about this is that the pain, the anxious toil you have about marriage, about family, about your work, you know what they are? They're indicator lights, right? It's like, you know, you're driving your car, you're minding your own business, and the light comes on, and you're like, oh, great, now I've got to deal with this. And you go, say, I've got to go take it to the place, that, the only place I know that someone will go fix it. The indicator light is on when you feel the weight of the curse, that something is wrong with us, something's wrong with our world, and it's asking you that question, where are you going to go when you're faced with death? Where are you going to go when you're faced with relational difficulty? Where are you going to go when you know, work just stinks and you hate it? Where are you going to turn to? Those are indicator lights of saying, hey, the stories are true. Where do you find rest? And this is where we get the first promise of Christmas. It's a promise of salvation through judgment here in Genesis 3.15. And so let's go back and look at it for a moment, and this will lead us to the end. All right? There's good reason to focus on God's words to the serpent. This is the center. Right? In the original languages, that just, and this is just the way they communicate. They love to communicate in patterns. And so you read, you're reading Genesis 3, you got Adam and Eve, they, they fail the temptation, they take and eat, and then God shows up and he starts speaking. And this is the pattern of his speaking. First he talks to the man, then the woman, then the serpent, then the woman again, and then the man. Right? It's an ABCBA pattern. And right in the middle, it's the, the words to the serpent. Right? And it's, it's their way of saying, I'm going to stick this in the middle and I want you to pay attention to these words. It's Genesis 3.15, the first promise of Christmas, the first stone in the mosaic of God's covenant of grace where he's going to say, okay, you need a Messiah. You can't fix this on your own. You need a, a future descendant of Adam and Eve who will undo the damage that's been done. Right? So you know what a mosaic is? Right? And Go back to art class. You've got lots of tiny little painted stones, and somebody with a much more brilliant mind than I can picture painting each individual stone. And, you know, by themselves they look random and disconnected, but when you put them all together, and then you take like a trip over the stool here, a 20,000-foot view, all of a sudden a picture jumps out, right? So you just Google mosaic of like Martin Luther King or Kobe Bryant, and they'll have... You can zoom all the way in and you see one little part. But when you zoom out, you can see, oh, that's Kobe Bryant's face. Right? And this is how the, the scriptures work. That each promise, each pattern, um, each shadow of perfection, even each failure, which gets you to long for goodness, they're like little stones in the Old Testament. And you look at each one individually, you go, I don't know what that means. I don't know where this has taken me. 
But when you get to the New Testament and take a giant step backwards from a 20,000 foot view, you go, oh, this whole thing from Genesis 3.15 to Christmas till Jesus returns has always been about what God is going to do through Jesus. And that first stone laid in the mosaic of Christ is Genesis 3.15, a promised Messiah, a promised king, a son who will undo the curse, who will destroy the serpent by crushing his head and in the process suffer by having his heel bruised. Right? And so here's one really encouraging thing. Notice in 3.15, this is a unilateral Sovereign promise coming from God himself. He's going to do this. This person's going to come. He's going to work through Eve. But God says, no, I'm going to fix this. And he says the woman's going to have a son, an offspring, who's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to destroy evil, that what was meant for evil, God is going to work through this family that is also going to be marred by evil for the good of all mankind, through one particular son. Right? And so Genesis 3.15 is saying, he will crush the head of the serpent while having his, head, uh, his heel bruised by that serpent. It's looking for a particular person who's male, who's a son. A son of God made in the image of God. A son of God made in the likeness of God who's promised to be a king, a prophet, a priest. Right? And we Christians aren't making this up. It's right there. I mean, Jews for centuries have read Genesis 3.15. Uh, you can go back and read the, the translation of the Old Testament in Greek called the Septuagint. And the way they do the language, they, they, take, they say, no, this is a person, a son. He will be the one to crush the serpent. Even the Jews are looking for this particular person promised in Genesis 3.15. They just disagree that it was Jesus. <laughs> and actually, the Septuagint goes further because they say, you know, they don't use the word crush the serpent. They write and say he's going to guard the serpent's head using the language of what Adam should have done, guarding the garden from evil and just stomping on the serpent. It's implied. And so here's the first Christmas promise. A son will be born of a woman to do what Adam should have done. Destroy evil. Do battle against evil and temptation. Lovingly obey God. Keep the covenant. Right? Submit himself to God's word. Enjoy God's presence. Be a faithful son. Be a good king. Love his bride. Defend her. Don't blame her. And that's what the whole story of the Bible is about. Who is this person? Right? It's just it's in seed form here. You don't know who it is. It's just called the Christ. Who will defeat evil? Who will undo death? Who will destroy the serpent? Who will give us access to the tree of life back into the garden again? Who will deal with that flaming sword of judgment? Right? It's going to be a serpent-crushing king, a son of Eve. And so as you read Genesis, this is what the whole story is about. That's what they're looking for. They are saved by their faith in the one who has promised to come, the serpent-crushing king. Adam is the first one. Look at verse, uh, was it 21? 
Verse 20, sorry. The man calls his wife's name Eve because she's the mother of all living. Adam believes the promise. He believes that she's going to be the mother of the promised one. That through Eve, the Messiah is going to come. And so he says, because she is the mother of all living. Adam was saved through his faith in God's promise. And so this is how you read the Bible. It's about Christmas and the second coming uh, to discover how God, through the work of a human descendant of Eve, is going to save the helpless and hopeless who are just marred by the curse. This is the gospel promised beforehand. So, how? We can fast forward where we are here, looking forward to Christmas. How is Genesis 3.15 point us to Jesus? The promise of Christmas is God is going to send a son, born of a woman, to suffer in order to defeat the serpent and undo the curse of death. How does he do that? Well, centuries later, Jesus is born of a woman to experience all the pain and humiliation that comes with the curse. You could say that Jesus experiences the pain of marriage, right? He's coming to guard his spouse, to defend her, the church. He has to die for an unfaithful spouse whose desires have enslaved us. It's everything God has made. Jesus has to die for an unfaithful spouse. He knows what it's like to be in a relationship where the covenant of marriage has marital difficulties. And this is the one with the perfect love. Right? And the, the curse is undone, because how does Jesus love us? He doesn't respond to our unfaithfulness with cruel dominion. He nourishes and cherishes his bride, the church, as he does his own body, laying down his life for us. That's love. Jesus feels the pain of work, the thorns and thistles. I mean, Jesus' whole life can be summarized as uh, being made perfect through his, the, the obedience of suffering, or the suffering of obedience, I should say, even to death on a cross. Because who are the thorns and thistles in Jesus' life? The world, uh, every human being, the seed of the serpent, if you will, that conflict that was foreshadowed. I mean, listen to Matthew 26 about uh, Jesus and his death. It says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And they twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head. And they put a reed in his right hand, and together, kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him, and they took the reed, and they struck him on the head. You hear Genesis 3 language? When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Thorns and thistles. The seed of the serpent coming against Jesus. Only here you see Jesus who knew no sin is becoming sin, who's being treated like the serpent being smacked on the head. 
And of course, his ultimate humiliation is the serpent-crushing king winning by being buried in the ground. He's going to eat dust in his death, in his burial, laying down his life for us while we were yet enemies. Why? What's the point? To undo death so that he might free us from the slavery of fear to death? And then to take away that flaming sword so that we might have access to the tree of life again. We're giving access to God's presence. Because when he died, that's what we're told, the curtain in the temple which symbolized the cherubim keeping us out. It's torn in two. And we can boldly enter into God's presence and cry out, Abba, Father, be with me. All of that is in seed form in the first promise of Christmas that God promised salvation through judgment of the serpent. And it turns out Jesus is that promised son. The way God brings us in by grace and grace alone. And, and so how do you end with all this? Well, what is Advent telling you? All the stories are true. Right, if God kept his promise to send a son born of the woman in Christ Jesus to undo death and to begin a new creation through his resurrection, how does that help you wait when your marriage goes not well, when you're living in the shadow of the valley of the shadow of death, when work is just keeping you up at night? You're going to groan and say, come Lord Jesus, come. And you're going to look at faith at the one who loves you, who gave himself up for you. Right. And so where are you feeling the pain and toil and frustration of this curse? Right. The way it starts to be undone is, is having our hearts melted by the grace of our Lord and Savior. He says, even though you feel the toil, I love you. I came for you. Right. Or you can think about it this way. Where are you feeling um, the thorns and thistles? kind of anxious toil is keeping you awake? Or maybe you are the thorns and thistles, (laughs) right? I mean, if you're really brave, you can ask your loved ones, where do they experience loving you like laying down in a bed of thorns? It's probably a good sign that you're putting too much hope in these things rather than Jesus who loves you. They're indicator lights. And so friends, let those indicator lights of your marriage, your parenting, your work, drive you to Jesus this Advent season. The Lord has come, and he will come again. I'll end with Romans 16, where Paul says, um, (laughs) here's what I want you to do. Don't be naive. Don't be deceived. There are people who do not serve the Lord Jesus, but they only live by their appetites. I want your obedience to be known to all because I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is what is evil. And here's the promise. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. God is so gracious that even in the work of putting to death the curse, he now includes us as the offspring of the woman in Christ. One day we will see that that, that hideous dragon defeated Tears will be wiped away, and we'll see the Lord face to face. 
Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we listen to what's wrong with the world and what you've done to right the world, you would make us faithful witnesses of those things and where we are feeling the very weight of the curse, groaning with all of creation, longing for our revealing to be your sons. Um, Help us wait with patience and to wait as a people with hope. We may have tears in our eyes, but we know that joy unending is coming because Christ came once and Christ will come again. So be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.